Welcome to Comically Confused, a new 52 podcast, where we're covering the new 52 one book at a time. I'm your host, Grant. And I'm your host, Nate. And Nate, what book are we covering this week? We're reviewing the second volume of Justice League. Justice League Volume 2. So we are covering issues 6 through 12 this time around. Uh, tell me about these books, Nate. Yes, it's continuing off on Jeff Johnson's uh, blockbuster on a Justice uh, with a couple art changes along the way, but it's mostly Jim Lee. And it's just a five-year five year time skip from the previous issue. We're now in present-day uh, timeline of the New 52 universe. And explores that explores how the Justice League uh, works in this world. Yeah, and what I find really interesting about this volume is usually the second set of issues or this, you know, issue 6 through 12 of any other superhero series, you're still working with the early days of those superheroes whether it's an individual or a team like if you look at spider-man or x-men or most other pre-existing books issues six through twelve are just picking right up after uh issues one through five uh in this case though with the five-year jump we're telling a very different story with the second volume instead of this being justice league year two it's justice league year five so uh, it's definitely interesting as far as uh, reading order goes, especially after how much the first one was focused on being an origin story for the team. Yeah, exactly. Because like, it's re- some some ways it benefits the book, in some ways it's like a downside of us mm-hmm. missing half a decade worth of like things we could have seen with the team because we don't know who like the Justice League have done, like who have they fought together, their relations to the building, because like like. A time skip for like a year or two years, that's like some stuff can happen, probably more because it's like a superhero universe and like a lot of stuff happens on like a monthly basis in those worlds. But like a five year gap is like really huge. That's half a decade. Yeah, for sure. And that's definitely going to lead into a lot of our points here because it has such a strong impact on a lot of the storytelling decisions and the way characters and ideas are introduced to this universe, uh, whereas they otherwise could have been just introduced organically if we had started right where the last volume left off and kept going from there. But, I mean, I think that's more flawed of, like, the New 52 being, like, a more of a soft reboot uh, than, like, a full-blown reboot. Like, we see... Like we see from something like the Ultimate Comics, when you can like they frame like the groundwork of that universe from like Peter Parker getting bitten to like uh, Peter Parker getting bit by like the spider, seeing like the Ultimate form and like going that groundwork, or whatever, or like some like the movies or whatever. Like we skipping so much of story that could potentially happen yeah. in this type of reboot. And I do apologize to our future readers because that's going to be a point I think we'll be harping on a lot, or especially I will be in particular, because I really think that was a major misstep of the new 52 is if this was meant to bring in new readers, uh, you've really got to go that full remake route, in my opinion, because instead of having something like the ultimate universe, that's just an interesting retelling of the universe decisions for the good and bad, regardless uh, that it does work as a starting point where you can hop on and read through and understand everything that's happening. Whereas this doesn't quite satisfy either audience. It's not ideal for new readers to comics because there's a lot of things they assume you to be familiar with by going the soft reboot route. And it's also not great to existing readers because, well, 
a lot of years of continuity and things people loved about the old universe are just in the trash now. So uh, I feel like you've got to pick one direction and really go with it. Yeah, I can finish off this point. I, I can really feel that because like, even if they did a full reboot, it would have still been like a whole bunch of outrage because like, let's take for the Bat family, for example, like people favorite characters are like, didn't appear for like later in like that continuity. So like, if they did a full reboot, we didn't have characters like Tim Drake or Red Hood or like uh, the different Batgirls and all that. And people like adore those characters. So it's it's a hard thing to do with like a full blown reboot to like a world to a type of continuity like DC where like it's generations of different super type of superheroes. Now, to bring our attention back to the book at hand here, uh, let's uh, take a look at the artwork for this volume. Uh, now, things change up a bit here, especially with issues 7 and 8. Uh, not only are these issues focusing on different characters, we also get new artists, uh, with Gene Ha covering issue 7 and a guest artist team of Carlos Dianda, Ivan Ressi, and Joe Prad for issue 8. And I do apologize for all of the mispronunciations there because I'm not terribly familiar with any of those artists. Yeah, I'm not familiar uh I'm not familiar with any of them either, but uh issue seven was like the biggest overall in style of this comic. And I don't know exactly how I feel on it. Yeah, I don't mind the change in art style in issue seven that much. Uh while it's definitely different from Jim Lee's, I don't feel like it's quite different enough to be jarring, as I've often run into with other books. And I feel like there is some precedent for it because we're now looking at the events of these Justice League adventures from the view of a soldier rather than league than the League itself. So it kind of makes a little more sense that Issue 7's art is a little more gritty uh, and down-to-earth and just a little more ugly in general because uh, as the book is focusing on, we're seeing how rough it is to be Steve Trevor, the soldier in relation with the Justice League, the guy on the ground that's not immortal dealing with these events and also having to deal with all the ugliest sides of the public relations for the League. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, because uh, the artwork in this is, like, really, like, uh, not as uh, primary colors as, like, the other issues. It's really darker in tone, like, darker in coloring and, and things like that. Yeah, almost like if it's got some kind of gritty filter laid over it. Uh, issue eight is uh, more back to like the fun Jimmy type art of being back to like primary colors because it's back to being a uh, standard superhero affair. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I can tell that the details of the characters are all a little more exaggerated in issue eight. They're a little bit more cartoony, but uh, I mean, issue eight is kind of a self-contained comedy book in relation to the rest of the series, and. I have to say it's successful at that. It did make me laugh pretty frequently throughout. So it, it kind of works that we have the more exaggerated features that's very helpful in terms of a comedy book. And also that particular issue hops around quite a bit, showing different adventures, the league. So I think that's where the different artistic teams come in is you can pick up on slight differences in the art style from page to page, depending on who's there. Uh, but it's not different enough that, any particular page of artwork feels out of place. Yeah, Jim Lee's artwork in issues 9 through 12 is consistently good as always, and there were some challenging things he had to draw for this issue. Uh, namely, uh, there's a little bit of the spirit world and ghosts and such that get involved, and 
I know translucent type of ideas and characters can be very hard to convey in comics, and he does it successfully. It certainly wasn't uh, jarring whenever those characters showed up. Yeah, so uh, I'd like to start off a little summary for issue seven and eight. Yeah, issues seven and eight are not nearly as event-heavy as the previous six or the upcoming four. Uh, Issue seven really just focuses on Steve Trevor as he's uh, following in the footsteps of the Justice League. Uh, In one of their adventures in particular, we see that he leads sort of a team of soldiers on the ground dealing with these threats before the Justice League gets there. Uh, And then it's also his job to deal with the press conferences after league activities and also talk to Congress uh, to kind of orchestrate like whether or not they need a liaison or uh, approve new membership and such. And he's just kind of the man in the middle who has to act as the barrier between the Justice League and the public. Uh, While we're seeing how much it sucks to be Steve Trevor in this case, since everyone wants the Justice League to be doing more, want them more in power than they feel safe. And then the government wants more involvement with the League who wants independence. Uh, And Steve Trevor is just the one who has to eat crow from everybody and then isn't even that well appreciated by the League. Um, The issue ends with us seeing some ominous narration from the upcoming villain of the book showing that if the Justice League has a weak point, it's Steve Trevor. Okay, uh, let's talk about Steve Trevor throughout this book as we're um as we're on his as we're on this topic. I really like this adaptation of Steve Trevor in this. This is like this is like one of the only adaptations of Steve Trevor in like recent history, other than like the Chris Pines one from the movie that I actually like enjoy seeing. Yeah, I'm very much in the same boat. I've never seen Steve Trevor outside of the context of just Wonder Woman's boyfriend. Uh, so getting to see a new take on him like this and like, yeah, everyone would always think, oh yes, Wonder Woman's boyfriend, he's got the dream life of any guy. But in this issue, we find out they are not dating anymore. And there's some kind of history there. Uh, not only that, but he's basically eating crow from everyone he's interacting with. He doesn't have a great life. Uh, it's not easy to be him. Yeah. And we get to see a lot of like elements from like, that, like Steve Trevor, Steve Trevor is like followed around by like TMZ. He's like day drinking, um, <laughs> and he can't catch a break from anybody because like he was the man hooking up with Wonder Woman, and now he's not. And he gets a lot of shit from that. And I I don't know because I really other things I like about his character is like him being a lazy one from justly give a different perspective, uh, and show like a point of view character how will see the Justice League um, through, like, the public eyes, saying, like, the Justice League, they think the Justice Leagues are, like, best friends or gods and all that. Yeah, and this issue is just a very good example of one of my favorite tropes in comics of this generation. Uh, Just the individual issue that focuses on a character you've never paid too much mind to and making you appreciate them a little more going forward. Uh, Because Steve Trevor is absolutely that. He's he's like the male equivalent of Lois Lane, but not interesting. Uh, And this very much turns that around. And I've seen that with other books with uh, like identity crisis shows that with the elongated man's wife, a character I've never thought about before that. And by the end, Oh man, I really cared about that character. Uh, And it's just a pretty common thing to see in comics nowadays. And honestly, I love it every time I see it. Yeah. And let's just get this relationship off the way between a one woman, Steve Trevor. How do you think that is like portrayed throughout the comic? 
uh, route to volume. Yeah, throughout these six issues, uh, I actually like the way this is depicted. You can tell that this isn't just a matter of Steve having feelings for Wonder Woman and her not feeling the same way. Uh, you pick up on a lot of hints from Wonder Woman throughout issues 9 through 12 that show like this is a matter of them being from very different worlds and being very different people, even physically. I mean, uh, Wonder Woman is presumably immortal. She's going to outlive Steve. Uh, bullets bounce off of her, but he's very much a weak point, and people will come after him to get to her. And even though he's an incredibly well-trained soldier that can handle himself, the fact that he's not a god is still a problem. So I, I think it's a pretty well-handled way of showing one of the most well-known DC romances, uh, why it doesn't work in this world at this point. So I'm fully on board with it. Yeah, it's... At first it makes Diana seems like a like a the bad guy, but you see her perspective of it, like you said earlier, about her being like um, a god compared to like a regular human. She's doing this for like Steve Trevor's safety because it's instant in the past where she got too close to people. I think that is handled well. And it really makes you feel for Steve in this. Like it's a lot of scenes where like Steve is just reflecting on like his relationship with Diana and you just see him as sad. Like it, you can see the hurt ends in. And the only thing I have a critique about is, like, I wish we could see a little more of their relationship beforehand. Because right now, all we get to see, if we're just using the concept of, like, Justice League, Volume 1, Justice 2, is, like, the small scene beforehand of, in the first volume of them talking about, like, Diana, and that's fairly brief. Yeah, and I'm really glad they didn't just depict Diana as the heartbreaker that's out of Steve's league in this. Instead, I feel like it's a very relatable version of being on the quote-unquote bad guy side of a breakup. Uh, I, I think this very much takes into account what it's like to be the person that has to acknowledge that a relationship can't work, uh, especially from a place of inexperience. Because Wonder Woman goes into detail about the fact that like, she has no experience with male-female relationships at this point. She just figured it was, oh yeah, if two people like each other, they're together. Uh, and that's often not how things work and i think a lot of us have been through an experience similar to that in the early days of our dating in this case it's just happening with one of the most high profile people on the planet and that sucks yeah so, so moving on uh how about you give us the summary for issue eight issue eight follows green arrow and his many attempts to become a member of the justice league we see glimpses of a lot of different adventures the Justice League go on, different enemies they fought, and how Green Arrow has been kind of on the periphery of these events. Uh, it's definitely played up for laughs. There's a lot of comedic moments here that almost all land, if I'm being honest. Uh, and the issue ends with us seeing Green Arrow being approached by Steve Trevor. Uh, he's not ever going to get the invite to the league that he's so desperately seeking but we do find out the government is building a team of sorts or a league of their own of which they think green arrow is going to be a perfect candidate for uh, we also see some important events in this book uh, alluding to previous events that have happened in the five-year gap with the justice league such as some kind of confrontation with the martian manhunter and a few various villains and we're left with an ominous final page where Martian Manhunter is observing the League from worlds away, and his last message about them is that they're not prepared. Yeah, um, let's talk about Green Arrow first. I really enjoy the gag of, like, Green Arrow just showing up, but not doing that much, like, not doing much as he show up. 
like the first gag is like um him showing up against Amazo, and all you see is like two arrows in his butt, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And it's I, it's it's a cool dynamic because like from like you expect like characters like uh Green Lantern and like Green Arrow to be friends because if you have like a context of uh pre fifty two continuity, they're like best friends. But like I kind of I kind of get. Why like Green Arrow and like Green Lantern with butt heads during like their first meeting, and you also get like a cute reference of that saying like they met beforehand. And another like fun fact that really doesn't play into the story, like it's a reference of like uh, Aquaman and Green Arrow being meeting beforehand, and that's the reference of the their first appearance in like the same uh, anthology series in like the Golden Age. So I thought that was cute. Yeah, that was a reference that totally went over my head, uh, so I was glad you brought that up since it was totally lost on me. But on the point of references, while I really enjoy this issue reading it now, uh, the sheer number of references is kind of a pain point for me. Uh, I remember reading this issue back when it came out in around late 2011 or 2012, and this was sort of where the new 52 lost me because almost every page we're getting references to an event that happened with the justice league outside of this book. Uh, whether it's things that we'll never see expanded on like green arrow, having met green lantern or Aquaman in the past, uh, or their little tie-ins with other issues. Like you see him fighting the court of owls or some cultists. And the book even has a little editor's note saying like, Hey, check out Batman or check out justice league dark to know what's going on here. Uh, as a reader who didn't have access to a comic shop at the time, I felt like this was just a commercial for other new 52 books. I didn't realize that the events we see with Martian Manhunter and green arrows references weren't in other issues so i figured those were just more commercials so i just sort of felt like this is where they stopped caring about me as a new reader or wanting to give me a good jumping on point to this universe yeah and that's weird because i had a different experience reading this because i read this in trade for my first time and like rereading it again for this episode and those it, those small captions they had for like you can check out this in like quarter hours or uh check out the cultists and uh just League dark didn't appear in the actual trade of the book it just appeared in like the monthly issues and if you know anything about those events like especially for like quarter hours like the justice league is barely evolved in that rarely evolved in that so it plays more in the trade as just being like a little gag just plays on like the gag of like green arrow showing up and not just trying to be like an ad because these can like theoretically be replaced by any other villain and have the same impact Yeah, and honestly, I almost wish that's what it was. I wish it was made clear to the reader that uh, these are just little mini-adventures. They're not of importance. You don't need to buy another book to read these. And in some cases, they are trying to sell you another book. So I'd just as soon they uh, swap these out with any other nameless villain or uh, familiar Justice League B-tier villain. Yeah, and on your point of, like, again, uh, we were talking about earlier, like, we miss a lot from not having like the um having that five-year gap in between this and like the start of like superheroes being relevant in this universe because it would have been a cool idea to have like green arrows show up and like an aquaman book beforehand or like a green lantern book beforehand so we have a little more context but we don't get that because of the time skip and talking about an ad it's another point in this volume that happens a lot and well i will touch on more again later that like this book does feel like an ad but not for those other books. 
it feels like an ad for another book that we're not going to review to a, a couple of weeks from now, probably a lot of weeks from now, that it's a lot of setup for another book called Just League of America as the team of like the government Justice League, which take up a lot of screen time in this that I don't really like. Yeah, I, I think it works to some extent like the Green Arrow story itself and exploring why he's not a member of the Justice League isn't uh, uncalled for in a main Justice League book. And the little tease that a league is being built isn't the end of the world, but uh, there is a lot of references to the upcoming Justice League of America book throughout these this arc. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's built up in further arcs as well. So yeah, really when I'm reading a comic, I want to read one comic. If you want me to read another, make that character interesting enough that I jump to the other book. Don't make me think I need to buy two books to follow one story. It just feels like you're trying to get my money rather than tell a good story. And I'm not saying like the scenes with like Steve Trevor and like Green Arrow were not like good scenes as their self. Like, I did enjoy, like, saying, like, the Green Arrow standpoint of saying, like, the Justice League needs a little more social, con- yeah, a little social conscience, and, yeah, that, that fits in with Green Arrow, and, and I feel like, personally, this is, like, a good introduction to this version of Green Arrow, so I do like the scenes with that, but I just feel like this could have been kind of put in, like, at the end of, like, at the start of, like, Justice League of America, instead of, like, taking up panels that we don't get to see with the Justice League in this book. Yeah, and that's a good point as well. Uh, Like, I like that we see a big part of Green Arrow's motivation to join the League is to bring that social conscience. But at the same time, that's one of the biggest missteps of this issue, because it's not until uh, 16 or 17 pages in that we find out Green Arrow cares about these issues. And we only find out because Steve Trevor and Arrow say it out loud. Like, hey, I've got a social conscience. Like, well, where's that been? Because you've just been kind of the not necessary goofball for the first first 15 pages of this book. You you should have been the one that's pointing out like, hey, uh, you wrecked this city block and no one's paying for this. Or you used that car as a weapon. That guy doesn't have a ride to work anymore. You've just ruined this guy's life because you needed a giant object to throw at a villain. That's, that's not really fair. So... I feel like they either shouldn't have addressed it at all and brought it up in Justice League of America, or they should have been addressing that throughout and maybe made that one of the pain points of like, Arrow, we don't really have time to worry about the little guy right now. The fate of the world is literally on the line. Yeah, and a couple a couple more facts we have is uh, uh, that what I mean by ad for the book is like Steve Trevor, uh, Green Arrow, and Martian Manhunter is a big part of Justice League of America. And I do uh, one more trivia thing before we move on. I do like the fact that Green Arrow is the least mentioned in this. And he does get like a little spotlight because if you know like Justice League like history, just Green Arrow was the first uh, new member that actually joined the team. It was a nice like reference a callback to that. Yeah, yet another reference that went over my head. So that is a nice little touchstone. Uh, but I will say overall with issues seven and eight, I liked that they kind of changed their focus away from the league onto these two smaller characters. It, it is a little surprising that they're going to focus on other characters so early on in the book, but I think they're just relying on the fact that the rest of the league is pretty well known as far as superhero comics go. And plus so many of these characters have books of their own. So I think the writer is relying on the previous several months of those books to flesh out these characters a little more 
Um, that's not to say I don't wish there were more moments taken to flesh out each individual league member, but support showing the supporting cast is also important in any ongoing book. Yeah, so let's let's go on to uh, you say our summary of issue nine through twelve. Yeah, so in issues nine through twelve, we see that Steve. Trevor is kidnapped by a new villain of the Justice League, David Graves, the man who wrote the book on the League and literally gave them their name. The team is pushed to its emotional limits when they realize Graves has gathered more information on each of them than they know about each other. Before they can sort this out, the League is attacked by Graves and their own satellite, and his ability to control their emotions allows him to incapacitate the Justice League single-handedly. When they come to, they realize that Steve has been kidnapped and potentially already killed. This makes the League erupt into an interpersonal fight between Wonder Woman and the others over her attempting to pursue and kill Graves alone, seeing this as a mission for revenge. This fight is broadcast to the entire planet, which brings the world's trust in the Justice League into question. The League tracks Graves to the Valley of Souls, where he was originally given his powers by the fallen gods of the undead. He makes them each come face to face with what appears to be the ghosts of their dead loved ones. When they realize that the ghosts aren't real, they're able to come together and defeat Graves. It's then revealed that Graves attacked the League because he blamed them for the deaths of his family, who all became terminally ill after being rescued by the League in the previous volume. In order to regain the public's trust, Green Lantern steps down from the Justice League and publicly claims responsibility for the fight. The arc ends with Amanda Waller approaching David Graves in prison and asking him to write a book just for her, one called How to Kill the Justice League. So let's talk about the Justice League starting off with fair dynamics and relationship in this. I... I really enjoyed the smaller stuff with the Justice League. Like, just the, the scenes of, like, interaction between characters. And I really enjoyed, like, the first part we see in these issues of, like, we get to see, like, the little... It's like a friend group of friends. And, like, every group of friends, you know, have, like, duos of pairs that, like, closer friends, like, the group itself. So we get to see, like, characters like Batman and Superman join up with each other outside of team or like green uh green lantern and like the flash team up on little adventures before they like the just league comes together as a team to fight uh great and i really love the quiet moments they give each member like our first time seeing batman we see for what's been the first time for me as a longtime batman reader uh we see gotham's view of batman as a member of the justice league and people wondering like why does he even bother with these small time gotham issues when he's got the justice league that he's running around the world with or like how superman feels like an outsider on the daily planet and they just do so many interesting things in this book showing why certain characters take to each other as good friends so well because each member of the team is an outsider in some way and yeah, we see how like Superman and Batman really relate to each other, despite being very different in their power scale, or how like Green Lantern and Flash both really get along because they're both kind of working within the realm of the government with him in the military and the other in the police. So I really just love them kind of expanding on these superhero bromances. Yeah, but it's it also is like a con because this doesn't the Just League team with Amber as a whole like all seven of them doesn't feel like a team that been together for five years. Mm -hmm. Like it's a lot of like conflict and with them barely knowing each other. Like, it's really weird. Somebody like, like pre, even though I treat like new 52 Superman and like pre 50 Superman as like different characters, but it feels like it's worth that none of them know their identities at this point. 
Yeah, it's totally wild to me that you'd be working together for five years and not know so many important details about each other. So it really feels more like a league that's been with each other for maybe a couple months, not several years. Yeah. Also, like, it's a it's a big moment that you said earlier with the fight between Wonder Woman and the rest of the team. And I felt like that fight felt really forced. Hmm. Yeah, just Wonder Woman kind of flies off the handle with very little lead up and she's immediately striking Green Lantern and Superman just like getting physical over this conflict, which granted is a very emotional thing. Like I can understand why she would be frustrated, but uh, just to see the League attack each other so quickly doesn't feel right. Like it's almost like the League has never been challenged at all before this. Like it, it like seemed like the league never had any like interpersonal conflict inside the group, which is strange for like a team that happened for five years. Like this is like one of the first times this ever happened, and I think this more have to do with my this adaptation of Diana and this that she's she's really different. Like other takes of Wonder Woman that where she's like a like a battle battle hungry type character compared to like her other adaptation of character, and I think that's more of a problem with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's now, important this when she talks about like, yeah, I oh, I get to cut off their heads and that and all that. Like, that doesn't feel like the one Woman I know. Yeah, and it's here that we see like, it almost seems that the Justice League doesn't really like each other all that much, which seems out of place given what we see in issue nine. But I know, uh, I know, like my favorite line in the book that at the same time feels kind of out of place is when Wonder Woman and Green Lantern are fighting directly and she's like, this isn't giving me any pleasure, but I'm sure you've heard that before. It's like, Wonder Woman, how long has that one been in your pocket? I feel like you've kind of hated Green Lantern this entire time you've been on the same team. And that's not what I got from issue nine. Yeah, it's it's weird, man. And like, it's a saying, saying like, Superman been like always hovering above us for all these past years and we barely know him. And that that's just weird that even that distance from the team. And that's another issue. Like, Superman throughout these two volumes get the least amount of screen time and the least amount of, like, presence, strangely, for being, like, a main part of, like, the team. Yeah, and I think a big problem coming into this one with it being five years later is this story would actually almost make more sense if they just said this was year two or one year later. And I don't know how much this time jump is affected in the arcs following this but i really don't feel like they'd be hurt that much if you said like okay this is year two and then volume three is five years later or maybe just a couple years later like you can have a five-year time skip and just slowly kind of catch up the reader to current events i don't think there's anything wrong with that yeah it just doesn't feel like that and there's a couple more points i like to say like i don't like how they just like not not discussing that it's a good point that aquaman might be able to be a better leader to the team than Batman in this. Because mm-hmm. I never liked the idea of having Batman as the team leader of the Justice League other than him bankrolling the team, which I don't even think he's like bankrolling like the entire team in this because we see different times in the in this volume that the government has helped support the league as well. And I like the idea of Batman being like the strategist league, but him as a leader doesn't make that much sense to me <laughs> other than him being like super smart. Compared to, like, the guy that runs, the like, run, like, a Atlantis? Yeah. And I I just feel like the Justice League, as 
far as the league I know, doesn't really need a leader. I mean, in a fight, Batman is definitely the one calling the shots because he's the tactician and everyone just kind of goes with that. And Superman's sort of the public face because he's the one everybody trusts and they all kind of look up to. But it's not like the Avengers where Captain America is definitely the leader or even like Teen Titans or X-Men where there's always kind of a designated leader. Uh, The Justice League is supposed to be the fully functioning adults who can totally handle handle most problems by themselves and are just kind of coming together to solve this problem. I I don't feel like someone should need to be making decisions for the group outside of battle plans that you can safely just let Batman take care of. Yeah. And another thing, last point on this league team dynamic in this is that I don't feel, I don't, I feel like it was either Jeff Johns who made the decision to make Green Lantern lane because he was doing stuff with his Green Lantern book at the time or it was like editorial or something like that because I don't feel like the the, the departure of Green Lantern was natural in the story. Hmm. Yeah, it definitely comes out of left field in the very last issue. I, I was not expecting a member of the league to leave all of a sudden, and I definitely didn't expect Green Lantern to be gone so early in this book. Now, if Green Lantern didn't have as much presence as he did throughout this, it would make a little more sense and it wouldn't feel like a big departure. But I feel like once we start like reading other volumes, like volume three, volume four, like we're actually going to feel like the departure of Green Lantern a lot because he's, he's one of like the main characters. And even in volume two, he gets a lot of screen time and especially him being like the point of view character of volume one, it feels really weird. And not like his decision that fits this story for Green Lantern to leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if they needed to get a member off this team, I feel like they could have written around this in a way to maybe make it like Aquaman or Flash or I'd hate it to be her, but even Wonder Woman. Just make it make a little more sense who's deciding to step down here or maybe do a little bit of a lead up to it. But I do think this is actually one area where Jeff Johns often has issues as a writer uh i've followed some of his early work like his first run on the justice society of america in the 90s and that was a book that starting off had like upwards of 10 members on the team and every couple issues either some new obscure dc character was joining the team or one of the members was leaving but i never felt like i was made to care enough about any of those members to feel anything about them coming and going And I think that's just showing that he hasn't really made a lot of progress on overcoming that fault as a writer with him having Green Lantern leave so early and it feeling so out of nowhere and unearned. Yeah. And we don't even get to see, like, the aftermath of, like, Green Lantern. Like, we don't get to see that scene of him being, like, because they say he's going to be, like, the scapegoat of, like, get this way, like, the public opinion of Justice League back after, like, the big brawl. But we don't even get to see that. So we don't forget to see like the um, resolution of that. We just know he's gone, which just feels bad. Like sh- uh, show and don't tell. Right. Yeah. We don't get like the Bill Clinton speech of him admitting that like, yeah, I messed up guys. This is all on me and I'm stepping down because of it. And I feel like that could have been a very heavy moment if they gave it the weight it deserved. Yeah. Now moving on to our last key points on this, uh, we're going to be talking about the villain itself, Graves. So what's your thought on this? thoughts on him in this uh david graves i really like as a villain in concept like they managed to 
really put him in the background of volume one with you not even realizing it with him being just one person they rescued and you see he's published a book that gives the justice league their name uh and i think he's a pretty interesting concept as far as someone who like worshipped the league and then feels let down by him and that's why he becomes a villain uh, there are some problems i do have with him for one i think his design is very unoriginal it might have been a little better back in 2011 when we hadn't had some of the worst parts of modern comics but every new villain has looked exactly like David Graves for the last few years. Like, Rogel Czar is just a beefier version of David Graves in uh, the recent Superman comics. The Flash is a villain like that now. Even one of the newer big bads of Spider-Man from his most recent run has had similarities of just the white skin, the kind of scaly surface to it, the cloak, some kind of tie to the hero's past. Uh, I just think... American writers are not that great at designing villains anymore. Uh, and it's really showing in the last few years. And I have an, another whole tangent I go on about how uh, America doesn't seem to be able to design a kaiju because all our giant monsters look exactly the same. If you look at the first Godzilla, Super 8, or um, Cloverfield, it's the same monster in every movie. I feel like we're getting that with comic book villains too. Every new villain is the same exact thing. That's actually a good point. Uh, I don't want to harp on too much, but I do feel like it's been a, most of the villains we see nowadays are like one and done villains because they're not that popular or older characters from way back because they have good designs and good backstories. And those characters have like time to develop over the years. The only like character new villain that, that comes to mind in recent years, and it probably more in like the back of my head, but I think harder is like a character like Godspeed from The Flash, which has like mm -hmm. a really cool design. But for like the couple, like the last couple years in like comics or probably like the decade, it's not that many like standout villains. It's down to like heroes for sure, but not like standout like villains that people care about. It's a lot of using like old villains. But uh, talking about Graves himself here, I, I do like the concept of Graves. I do like the situations Graves put the heroes in. Like I really love the scene with the spirits where it's like, it shows every character shows every character uh, have a relative that dies and then cyborg it actually shows like victor stone before he was cyborg saying like he did i feel like that's a good thing to like to put the characters through yeah i really wish cyborg got more of a spotlight in this arc because the implication that he's a corpse animated by his robot parts that's existentially terrifying and it's such a bummer he didn't get more of a focus to talk about like how horrifying that would have to be to come in for him to come into the ghost version of himself because uh, i mean everyone else like they've known their loved one has been dead for a while his is the only one that's like a major shock to him other than wonder woman being misled to think that steve trevor is dead because she sees a ghost of him before he appears in the flesh shortly later yeah and i also feel like it's another thing about like showing not telling i like i really think grace would have benefited if we can actually see like his family like like because they said in the issue that his family died because dark side omega beams that like blew up like a blew up in issue volume one i remember you say that uh dark side's omega beam that like flash avoided in volume one actually like that got into people uh got into people and like did damage to him and killed his family i wish we had a scene of like 
we seeing like his family coughing and then we get like a flash forward of like his family getting sick and all that so we can actually feel for that because a lot of us hearing what graves been through but i don't really get to see it and i do like the concept of like the aftermath of like villain fights yeah and the thing is right before this arc they dedicate a whole issue to green arrow something that isn't even going to pay off for quite some time after this arc so instead they should have given issue eight to david graves's backstory like let's see him go through his family's death like the biggest flaw in the character is that his motivation doesn't totally make sense it's almost there but it's like okay so the justice league saved his family they got him out of the way of the omega beams but presumably they inhaled some fumes from him or being on the scene and so close made them die and not everyone else that was at that initial attack so the thing is like okay i get that it's terrible your family died but like they also would have died if the justice league didn't save you and also dark side coming had nothing to do with the justice league they formed after he was here uh so i think we should have seen something to explain why like oh maybe he did reach out to the justice league to be like hey something's wrong because of dark side we need your help and them not being there like them not having the time for him because as is like i have sympathy for the character like i think blaming his family's death on the league is a good motivation it just should be a little more warranted since he's shown to be a very smart and calculating villain yeah and a couple a couple like uh, the last thing i like to mention about graves that like the, the climax the conclusion to like the the bad or whatever feels falls flat to me like it like i love it like he just they just won by brute force that's all that is that's how they won yeah I guess I feel a little differently on it because it's so early in the Justice League run. Like, I feel like when it comes to superhero comics, uh, when it's a team of heroes together, so many of the individual villains you'll see, they don't overpower the team, but they have something to them, like some gimmick that the heroes aren't prepared to face. And that's what he has uh, his first time facing them. Like, he uses their emotions against them. That's not really a thing they've ever dealt with before. And the only reason they beat him at the end is because they find a way to kind of work around that. Maybe it's not the best way, but it is pretty typical as far as superhero team comics go. Like if you look yeah. at the teen Titans, a lot of their villains would never stand up in like a fist fight against the whole team where X-Men I think is even more famous about it. Like take a hero or a villain, like the juggernaut who, okay, this guy is stronger than anybody on the team, but because of the couple old issues where they learned to deal with him, they would never have a whole story arc dedicated to Juggernaut now. Because, yeah, they know how to beat him. That's kind of the situation with this. Like, it's one villain who they can beat altogether, but they need to know the key to beating him. And his first time showing up, that's going to be a pretty big problem. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, I don't have, it's not like a big major complaint I have. It's just, just felt like it could have been a little more creative than just like punch, stabby, stab you know but a couple little points i have like little little like points i couldn't try to fit anywhere in this i felt like uh one scene in particular felt kind of dumb to me it was like when steve trevor was uh talking to reporters and they said like the justice league can help us with our economy our school system and all that and i that just seemed dumb to me yeah early on in uh, steve trevor's issue we see that the public immediately has like full support in the justice league they want them to actually run the government because they god knows why they don't trust their own government to solve their country's problem um uh, 
And it felt a little out of place when I first read that in issue seven, because as you and I know, the new 52 is a pretty dark line of comics, but I, I think maybe that was there intentionally because a big part of this arc is the public losing trust in justice league after that fight. Uh, the only thing is, I don't think that's something that should have been tackled in a single arc. Like we should have had a little time where the justice league are the heroes. Everyone thinks they are. And then I think you should dedicate the whole arc to them slowly losing the trust of the public, like justice league unlimited, the cartoon show dedicated several episodes to that, to give the public good reason to not like that. There's a powerful satellite looking over them that, if something goes wrong, could wipe them out at any second. And I feel like we just needed a little more build up to the public losing trust in the league to the point that someone has to step down to take accountability for the biggest screw up of the league yet. Yeah, because it feels it feels like it sets up here, but it's not a conflict later because like, oh, it's Green Lantern, Green Lantern is just going to be the scapegoat. So everything's going to go back to normal. That feels like, oh, it could have like, it's in you want little more but it just get closed here uh but another point i had i feel like it feels really one and done ish but we didn't talk about it that like cyborg apparently the just leave be teleporting to apocalypse like cyborg accidentally right yeah early on in the book uh they need to teleport out of a situation but they bring up this factor where one out of every hundred or so times cyborg teleports, they accidentally wind up on apocalypse. And so they're like, Oh, we're overdue for that to happen. And I think that makes a really interesting dynamic. And like, I hope that gets played, played up later. Cause I thought that was an interesting thing to play with. Uh, as far as the way the heroes are traveling. It just was there. Hopefully it's foreshadow. I guess it comes back later. Hopefully it just feels like a weird concept that they're like going to dark side planet by random and that's just like a thing they was doing uh my last point is the fun during like the final page we get to see one of uh one of my favorite dc characters that's not a superhero amanda waller and they made her skinny mm. yeah i really take issue with this because it's not even the only character they did this to uh i'm not terribly well versed in the wonder woman supporting character etta candy but the depictions of her, I know, tend to be plus sized and like her weight is a factor in the character. They made her skinny and hot. And now uh, Amanda Waller shows up and she's basically Halle Berry. That's not Amanda Waller. She's Amanda the Wall Waller because she's a big, intimidating person. And like she's not self-conscious about her weight. Like she is a commanding presence and like it's not a issue that she's rather large. Look, out of all characters, they can make sexy. Amanda Waller should not be on that list. That's And I think we're going to talk about this more in the Suicide Squad book itself, and where she's a main player in. I just wanted to mention that. that that's a no-no with me. No-no. Yeah. And speaking of sexy and no-nos for a lot of people, uh, right before we see Amanda Waller, we also get a glimpse of uh, Wonder Woman and Superman developing a romance for the first time. Uh, and I know a lot of people take issue with this, but I thought this was one of the few things done well in this comic as far as the Roman, like the fundamental changes to the universe goes. There's a lot of things I like in this comic, but this is the most controversial one because we see that Clark is an incredible outsider. He doesn't even have his family. This is one of the first times we see that his parents are dead in this book. Uh, so he doesn't really have the support system. We know Clark Kent does. And similarly, 
Wonder Woman doesn't feel like it's right for her to be with Steve because of the danger it puts him in and the difference between those two. So as far as outsiders go, uh, the physical responsibility both of these feel because of how powerful they are and the fact they come from outside of human society, I really think makes sense that they would latch on to each other early on because they don't have those foundational romantic relationships. So I love seeing Wonder Woman and Superman as a couple. I'm not saying that works pre-crisis, but I really enjoy getting to see that in a established continuity somewhere and not just weird alternate universe side books. Yeah, because the, like it's just like in every elsewhere, I'm telling you that it's just like they just want to hook up Wonder Woman and Superman. And I mean, I feel like this is the perfect time to do it because New 52, you got a new slate, semi-new slate. And like, if you want to do it, do it. I mean, no one, like, we've seen how many years of Lois Lane and Superman. It's not like, like a lot of comics fans say something like something this big of a change is going to be permanent. And I mean, we all know that like Superman and Lois gonna get together eventually. So let's have fun with it while we have the chance before we get to that point. Yeah, there's no need to rush into retelling the story we've seen a bunch of times. If you're gonna have if you're gonna change your toys, you might as well tell a new story with them. Look, like the shipper community, like the community that ship care together, we we know that Superman and one uh Superman and Lois is endgame. But Superman has some relationships out of that before that. Yeah. Now, one thing, I'm not sure if this is the place for it, but I, I hate that we've, this is our first time that it makes sense that we've seen Superman and Wonder Woman together, but I really wish they would build an Elseworld around this relationship specifically, not as a feature. I mean, this is the reason we're telling the story, because someday Superman and Wonder Woman are going to be the only members of the Justice League left from this team. Like, just about every other member is going to age and die. Whether these guys do their jobs perfectly, save the world consistently for the rest of those characters' lifetimes, they are going to outlive every human person they know. So I would love to see the version of these guys 200 years from now that are like, hey, we're two of a handful of people in the world that, like, have this perspective on humanity and still care about it this much. We've been friends for lifetimes like it makes sense for us to get together so i would love to see that future story like hey what if lois doesn't live forever and superman's got to find love again wonder woman actually is a pretty perfect candidate for that yeah that's yeah that'd be a good story because the closest thing we got for like older superman how they keep their uh lace of that i've seen is just like um in batman beyond where it's just superman just carrying around like a uh, elderly Lois Lane. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember there's a great reference in Action Comics 1000 in one of the side stories that he's just like, yeah, Lois is drinking her immortality shake. She hates the taste, but it keeps her young and they make it in chocolate now. And I love that. Like, just the idea Superman does such a good job saving the planet that like thousands of years in the future, Jimmy and Lois are still around because humanity gets its stuff together and figures out immortality in the next few years. Yeah, well, uh, so Grant, you think this is an improvement or a downgrade from our the previous arc? I think it's really hard to say in this case because it's such a different story than Volume 1. It's trying to do much different things than uh, that first volume introducing us to these characters, and it's doing different things than the typical second volume of a superhero story. Um. I think I actually like, I think I like this a little better, but I 
don't think it is the better book. Like, I got more enjoyment out of it, but if I'm going to grade this, I think the first volume deserves probably the higher score of the two, but I just really love those first two standalone issues because I'm a sucker for standalone issues since we so rarely see them now. And there are a lot of things I like about this book, despite its flaws, like the romance, uh, like the establishment of graves, the exploration of individual league members and the bromances and stuff. There's a lot of stuff I love in a Justice League story, but it is inherently pretty flawed at the end of the day. Yeah, I have to say the same. I, I, because I, it's a lot of things I enjoy, and it's some some things I didn't, I dislike. Uh, that I said earlier, but as an overall story, I feel like. Justice League Volume One flows better. Not saying, just saying, it's not improvement. Not saying it's a bad book by any extent. I had a good time reading this volume of Justice League, and I will continue. If I, I will continue reading. If I was still, uh, if the book was still coming out monthly, I was still like keeping my pull list. So uh, my final grade for Justice League Volume Two is a solid seven. That's exactly where I'm falling as well. So for our question of the day is uh who is your favorite individual justice league villain right so when we came up with this question we wanted to specify that was that it was an individual villain because so many of the forces we see the justice league come up against are like entire teams or armies uh like that usually is what's entailed with a dark side story or the other people they're fighting all the time is the injustice league which whole gathering of villains so those don't count uh, but for my individual villain of the Justice League, I'm going to have to go with Mongol. Now, I'll fully admit I don't have deep love for this character as a villain. I wouldn't put him in my top 10 villains or anything like that. But the first ever episodes of the Justice League cartoon that I caught were the episodes featuring Mongol. And I think there's a lot of good storytelling potential with that character, like how he has this kind of gladiatorial battle world out in space. Uh, he can separate the league. He's a match for Superman physically. So if you're throwing in Mongol into a Justice League story, there's a lot of good stuff you can do with it without getting too contri contrived. And there's a lot of fun scenery that goes with him. Yeah, it's it's cool. It's I, I like Mongo a lot. I like how the situation, especially with like Battle World and all that, that you can put the Justice League into. It's it's a really cool character. Uh, my choices, and before before I get my choice, saying this, this is kind of pretty hard to say because like some of like a lot of Justice League villains are either one and dones because they're not popular, or we have Legion of Doom situation where we have like an epic team up of different characters, or it's just like event in the world that they're dealing with instead of like being like a individual villain they can punch so it was pretty hard to uh, come up with my decision but my decision is uh let's say my second decision if the character was treated better would be permissibly uh prometheus from a uh, grant morrison run a character was just a basic basic dude that like just took wiped out the just league by like just planning and all that but i couldn't put him on my list because he get totally mistreated afterwards so my mm. uh character would be uh amazo oh okay good choice there so i really like the concept of a character that can just like be like the jack of all traits to the heroes and the heroes have to uh use figure out each other weaknesses to defeat them and i, I don't know i just like how goofy his design is being like this shirtless dude with a uh, <laughs> green pants that's a ginger 
as to really weird design that I love. Also, like the just the one from Justly cartoon is equally as awesome. Right? Isn't he more of like a like self aware android that's coming to terms with like what he is? If I'm remembering those episodes correctly, yeah, he, he looks totally different from like the Mazer from like the comics. He's like a gold and uh, robot that Justly don't even defeat. He just wanders space afterwards. Yeah, not like more like Doctor Manhattan in a sense. Yeah, I like Amazo too, just because he's a great villain to throw in a story where you're not looking for a new overarching one. Like, if you need some muscle on a villain team or just, like, kind of a weekly threat that you're not going to focus on, he's great. And that's exactly what this book did. Like, we get a couple pages that show the Justice League fought Amazo and Green Arrow was kind of there. And, like, yeah, that's normally how I see him, but there is a lot of good storytelling for a character that's often just thrown around as a henchman. Yeah, you know, it's a couple, it's, it's another character that just got like a little paid shot, and that's it. And we don't really get to really see him in the story in this series is uh, Storo, the original Justice League. Mm. He, appears, he appears on like the cover of the book that uh, Ava Graves is selling. Right. I mean, we've seen the Justice League's origin story told so many ways, but I really feel like we're overdue for an updating on the. Starro version of the origin story. I'd like to that see is, what a modern writer could do with that for there. That is true because, like, the main Disney origins I know of is like we either have Starro being like the original, we have like White Martians mm-hmm. from like uh, Justice League, uh, Justice League of America from Grant Morrison in the cartoon. It's another one with some elemental people uh, from uh, Pre Crisis. That's pretty interesting. And it's uh, Dark Side from uh, the Justice League movie. Apocalypse, let's say, for like Dusty Movie and uh, Dusty League uh, by Jeff Johns. So, Star is over to with adaptation. Yeah. So, uh, this was our first year covering a book, or I mean, our first time covering 12 issues. Uh, we're actually going to be switching gears here next week and covering a new book. Uh, but to bring this podcast to a close, I want to thank you for giving our podcast a chance so early on. Uh, feel free to send your own question of the week to us on social media, and if we like it, we'll put it in an episode. Uh, but yeah, we hope you join us again for next week, where we're going to be covering Action Comics Volume 1. Until then, we'll still be here, comically confused.